Spirit of the living God, you have searched us and you know us. You know when we sit down and when we rise and you know our thoughts from afar. Even before there is a word on our tongue, God, you know it before we speak it. You have hemmed us in, around and behind. And God, as we enter into this text and enter into this time, we ask that by your spirit, we would listen to your invitation that by your spirit, we would listen to you call out our name. That by your witness in the text, that we too would search and be familiar with the ways of Jesus, that we would know not only the words that he said, but the way that he lived. And so God, by your spirit, we come before you in this time and we ask that you would be the teacher today, not I that we would make much of your grace and much of this space. Thank you, God, for this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So if we'll open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14, I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but this is where I'm going to sit for a while. This is where we're going to sit for a while. And I would like to lift up a couple of verses, verses 13 and 23. In verses 13 and 23, I hear the Spirit's invitation to us. I hear the Spirit's invitation to our soul. And though it may be strange to just be talking about two verses, two or three verses here, I'm going to summarize the three, summarize the three larger sections around these verses. Okay, I see that the ways of Jesus here have as much to speak to us as the words of Jesus. Jesus is inviting us not only to listen to the words, but to watch how he walks and to walk, to watch his ways. So in Matthew 14 in verses 1 through 13, what we see is um, Herod. We all know who Herod is. He was a ruler at the time. He was a ruler at the time and he's hearing reports of Jesus, about Jesus. Herod is drunk on power and drunk on lust. He is drunk on the power of empire and he is drunk uh, on lust as well. John the Baptist comes to him and he is a truth teller and he tells him, uh, Herod, it is wrong for you. It is unlawful for you to have your brother's wife. And because it is costly to be a truth teller, John the Baptist is a truth teller. Herod is not a truth receiver. Herod puts John the Baptist in jail. He puts him in jail. He bounds him, the text says, and then he decapitates him because it is costly to be a truth teller. The funny thing is, is that the text here in verses 1 through 12 says that Herod is a, Herod believes in the resurrection of the dead. Funny thing. Herod believes in the resurrection of the dead, and he thinks that Jesus is John the Baptist resurrected. He's like, wait a minute. I thought I took care of this guy. I cut his head off because he told me the truth. And that's what happens when you tell someone the truth. And he says, note what the text says there in verse two. He says, this must be John the Baptist, this Jesus that I hear about, because truth tellers start sounding the same. There are powers at working him. It must be John the, Baptist, John the Baptist. So note that Herod observes that John the Baptist and Jesus are operating under a different power. They're operating under a different power and they have what I call incorruptible integrity, that they cannot be corrupted by the power of empire. And they're not being corrupted by the same powers that tempt Herod. 
So then further on, we see that um, John is beheaded while he is in prison. Uh, the disciples of John come to him. They take his body. They bury his body. And then they go and tell Jesus. And so that is what's happening in verses 1 to, to 12. And we get to verse 13. When Jesus hears that his primo has been decapitated. Primo is cousin in Spanish. That when his primo has been decapitated, beheaded in prison, he withdrew from there in a boat to a deserted place by himself. And this is where we pause for a minute and we listened to Jesus's invitation. He hears that his primo and partner has died. He withdraws, he gets on a boat and he says, I'm out, peace out. He goes to a deserted place by himself to what I think is to grieve. What I see in this, in this, in this verse, in this small verse, and this is where we pause because it's really easy to just skip over this verse and get to the miracle of the 5,000 or 15,000, like Pastora Lynette said. It's very easy to just jump quickly through here, whether uh, we're teaching a sermon or just reading for ourselves. We sit in this grief. And who I see and what I see is that Jesus, who we know is well acquainted with grief, Jesus is dealing with the grief of a loved one. His primo has died. In Nicaragua, primos are as close or as a sister or a brother. He is driven there by grief. Jesus knows and understands the grief of losing a loved one. He is human and he has family and he has even biological family that's doing ministry with him and he has lost someone. So we come to this text and we know and we see that Jesus understands that grief. Jesus understands that in this time in history over 100,000 people have passed away due to the COVID crisis in the United States alone. Jesus understands where we're standing in right now, the grief of losing a loved one. Jesus also understands what it is to lose a partner in, uh, in ministry because uh, he is not just his primo, he is his partner. John the Baptist was announcing and preparing the way of the Lord before he came. He is announcing that Jesus was here. And he is unjustly accused, unjustly put in prison, and unjustly killed and decapitated. Jesus not only understands the grief of losing a loved one, but losing a loved one unjustly. Jesus understands the pain of the family of Breonna Taylor, of the family of Mr. George Floyd, of the family of Ahmaud Arbery, and the hashtag community that we shouldn't even have. Jesus understands that grief. He gets on a boat. He withdraws to grieve the loss of a loved one and one that died at the hands of the state. He takes the time and he carves out the time to grieve. He enters into this boat, to the boat, verse 13 says, goes away. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from all of the towns. And wherever, when he went to short, he saw the crowd and has compassion over them. So in this next section in verses 14 through 21, we see 15,000 reasons why Jesus in the middle of his grieving, he stops with compassion. He is driven into this time of, of quiet rest because of grief, but then he's driven out of this time of grieving in order to heal and feed. 
So even in his grieving, Jesus is healing and feeding. There are 10 to 15,000 reasons because Jesus welcomes the women as well. And it's important to note, even in the numbers, the presence of women. Some scholars believe that it could have been a crowd of up to 25,000 in need. Jesus is grieving and Jesus is healing and Jesus is feeding. The crowds are sick and their crowds are hungry. But even in the midst of that, he looks up to the heaven. He doesn't depend on his own power. He looks up to heaven and blesses and breaks those loaves to feed the 15, 20, or 25,000. And then we get to verse 20, 22, where I'd also like for us to pause and listen to the Spirit's invitation. In verse 22, he says, um, the Spirit says, immediately, listen to how immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead to the other side while he dismisses the crowds. Jesus is not afraid immediately to carve out space for the disciples to care for themselves. So he, he turns from the compassion that he has for the crowds and turns that compassion on himself and his disciples. He is not afraid to draw boundaries and say, immediately, y'all go on ahead. Y'all go on ahead on this boat while I dismiss the crowds. I will take care of the crowds. Verse 23, and after he had dismissed the crowds, so he's already carved out space and drawn boundaries to, to care for his disciples, his partners in ministry. He goes up to the mountain by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was there alone. Listen to the Spirit's invitation unto us. He sends the disciples. He dismisses the crowd. He goes to the mountain by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was there alone. Between verse 23 and verse 24, there's an evening and there's a early morning. And we know the next section of the story. The next section of the story is that phenomenal story where we uh, hear and see that Jesus in the middle of the night is walking on water and then Peter is sinking and then Peter is walking on water. And it's a phenomenal, a phenomenal uh, uh, passage. In fact, uh, Pastor Bobby a few weeks ago preached on this passage and it was a powerful passage. But what I notice here also, that's also very important is to see that between verses 23 and 24, there's an extended time frame. And the things that I see in verse 13 and 22 and 23 is that there is a mountain. It reminds me of the echoes of Moses on the mountain. There is solitude. There is withdrawing to a quiet place. There is silence. There is prayer. There's extended hours alone. And I'm thinking if it's evening and then he's going to early morning, I wonder if he slept. There is sleep and solitude. It's God's holy invitation to rest. I want to let you know that sleep was part of this sermon prep. A friend of mine this week says that she was told me that she was going to be out of town and said, hey, if you want to go to my house, I'm not going to be there. So you can be socially distant and have some time alone. And, and I went and I was starting to prepare the sermon and I was overwhelmed. A lot of things have happened in my personal life and a lot of things had happened in our church plant as well. And I was overwhelmed and grieved. And when I came home back home, I, my husband said, how did the sermon go? And I said, awesome. I slept on the couch. 30 minutes, I closed my eyes and I didn't write one word. 
sleep was part of this sermon prep because like my co-pastor was telling me, I needed to live out the sermon before the sermon could live. And as I was looking at the ways of Jesus and what the Spirit's invitation was drawing me in verses 13 and 22 and 23, it was this, to turn the compassion of, towards the crowds, to dismiss the crowds and to turn that compassion towards myself. See, it's easy to get excited in these three sections. They're phenomenal sections in Matthew 14. It's easy to get excited for all that is happening around the mountain and away from the mountain. It's very easy to get excited about that. We gravitate, I tend to gravitate to the traumatic parts of the text and the triumphal parts of the text, but the texts that are carefully tucked in these sacred spaces and these silent moments are no less powerful and critical. It's easy to get excited away from the mountain, but not knowing that the power lies in those sacred moments away from the people and in the presence of God. What we see is the rhythms of Jesus and the ways of Jesus, not just the words of Jesus, but the ways of Jesus. How does he live? What sort of rhythms does he have? What sort of rituals does he have to sustain his body and soul for this type of work? What kind of rhythms does he have in order to be able to walk on water, in order to be able to save the sinking, in order to be able to feed the masses, in order to be able to grieve the death of his primo and to be angry about injustice? What sort of rhythms does Jesus have? Jesus does not resist the urge to rest. He shows us how to rest. He doesn't tell us to rest. He shows us how to rest. It's a show, not tell. And he shows us that rest is part of his resistance to the empire. Jesus is not driven there by obedience. My co-pastor told me this week, we were talking about this as we were preparing together because it's good to do this in community. He said, I don't think Jesus is driven there by obedience. And I agreed. I thought, that's right. He's driven there by, by grief. He's driven there by loss. He's driven there by death. He's driven there by injustice. We see a Jesus that is lonely, that is weary, that might be overwhelmed. I wonder if he's thinking, could I be next? Because if Herod is confusing him with John the Baptist, you know that lot. Jesus is driven by desperation. Jesus is driven by hunger. Jesus is tired and he is surrounded in these three sections. And I wonder when does he rest? Before the event or after the event? Yes, he chooses to intentionally rest. Jesus is housing grief from many habitats and so are we. We're in a global crisis. We're in local crises. We're in personal crises. Jesus is housing grief from his personal life. His primo dies. From his public ministry, 10, 15, 20,000 people are hungry and, and in need to be healed. And his partners and leadership are sinking, swimming, and walking on water. He has grief from all around him. And what does he do? Jesus and his humanity, not his divinity, I believe, knows the limits of his body and soul. He intentionally withdraws to a place of rest. Jesus will never ask you to do something that he's not willing to do himself. And I think it's true of this today. And he knows that the power to do the work of God 
came from being in the presence of God. Jesus didn't simply go away to be with the mountain, but to be with the one that made the mountain and with the one that can move the mountains. But sometimes I am the mountain that's unwilling to move at God's invitation. Sometimes I think it's easier for God to move a hill than to move me because God doesn't force himself on us. He waits for us to want him. He invites us and he waits. It's easy to get wowed by this mountain moving, mountain moving power. And it's also easy to resist the patience and the silence of his presence where nothing moves except the wind. But friends, familia, there is no substitute for the presence of God. Dr. Howard Thurman in this book, I'm not sure if you can see it. He wrote a book called The Disciplines of the Spirit. And in cha the chapter that he writes on prayer, which is carefully tucked in between suffering and reconciliation, imagine that. He says in his book, in chapter, the chapter on prayer, that um, well, what he does in his book is he, is he studies uh, all the gospel passages where Jesus withdraws to pray in this chapter. And he notes the, the similarities in the common ground. And what he notes is, of course, that this was Jesus's custom. It was his custom to go to a place of quiet rest where it was silent, where he was away from the crowds, away from his BFFs, away from everybody. And Dr. Thurman describes this as the hunger of the heart. I love the way he says it. And he says, and I quote, that the movement of the heart of a woman or the movement of the heart of a man toward God is a movement of God in your heart. And he says, the hunger itself is God calling out to God. That the hunger that we have in our hearts is, is itself God calling out to God because God created that hunger. And then he uses another word that's beautiful to me. Another word, he says, this hunger is awakens the givenness of God because God wants to give of God's own self to you. So it becomes a hunger that is an invitation where God wants to give of God's own self to you. He also describes it as a, a long breath, a long breath, a place of rest where you exhale. And he says where all the fragments are just left there in the surface, where you exhale in, in the little hurts and the big heart aches, you note them, you feel them, you see them, you sense them just like Jesus may have. He goes into this, these places of rest. He goes to the mountain driven by the many sources of grief. And I love to think of that, that when we go into these places, it is to tend to our fractured and fragmented souls. A few years ago, I was driving and I was listening to NPR. I was running from one thing to the next. Had dropped off my son at school, was running back to seminary to get my books, to go to class, to go to the library, to write the papers, to do all the things. I was task, task, task oriented. And I was listening to NPR and it was just a five minute ride between my school and my son's school and my own school, a five minute ride. But I had to pull the car over and I remember parking in front of Target and I was listening to the story on NPR where they're talking about this emergency landing that this plane had to, had to do. 
a plane uh, had lost an engine and had to do an emergency landing. And the investigation showed that there was nothing really wrong with the plane, like nothing monumental or magnanimous happened. But they called, um, they, they discovered something that they call in mechanical terms and aviation terms, fracture fatigue. The engine had fracture fatigue and is from the normal wear and tear of flying. The plane was doing what it was created to do to fly. And just from the regular ordinary flying, it has had it, the engine collects these fractures from the normal wear and tear. And then one day, you don't even have to be doing anything extraordinary. You're just doing the thing that you were supposed to be doing. You go from one thing to the next and bam, you lose an engine. And other traumatic things happen. I don't, I don't wanna share them here, um, but, but it just floored me. And I had to pull to the side and, and the spirit said, Ines, your soul is fragmented and fractured. You have fracture fatigue. You have such deep fatigue that it's not going to get better from just a good night's sleep. A few months ago, um, when we were in the middle of, of, of the COVID crisis, I was sitting at, the, at, this, at this dining room table with, with my husband and with my son. And my husband said, how are you? You know, with that lingering look that says, how are you really doing? How are you today, Ines? And I just started crying. My son was watching, and which is good for our children to see us have all the range of emotions, right? And I said to my husband, I am really sad, and I can't even tell you why. It was at the beginning of the crisis when all of this hit us, and our bodies just couldn't handle the, mag the magnitude of the grief. Because this kind of grief is different than any other grief. Uh, during this time of crisis, it is collective grief. It is a global grief. It is compounded grief. It has multi-layers because every individual has different family situations and how the crisis hits us. And then we have the added layers of the racial uh, uh, injustice and the racial violence. One thing over another, my soul couldn't handle it. I had fractured fatigue. I also was trying to live with my pre-COVID rhythms during a time of crisis and I realized it was not sustainable. So I went to my room and I said, mommy needs to be by herself. And I called a friend of mine, Pastor Manny and his wife get in and they call me and pray for me. And in that moment, I just, my grief came out and I cried and they prayed over me. And a couple of days later, I, I hung out with my co-pastor and I said, I just want to let you know, I'm struggling with deep seated sadness. I have fracture fatigue. And I needed a different type of rhythm, a more sustainable rhythm to be able to have the capacity to hold all the things that we're all holding and to also be okay that I don't have the capacity to hold the things that I used to. That it is okay actually to even under function because we're going through collective trauma. I was just crying at the dinner table. I was just eating my food one day and somebody asked, how are you really? Ruth Haley Barton is a theologian that I love and respect, and she's a contemplative and that I love and respect. And she says that the soul is the honest place where you are present to God and God is present to you. 
The soul is an honest place where you are present to God and God is present to you. The, the soul is that, play, is that place where your spirit witnesses to God about how you are really doing. And the soul is also that place where the spirit witnesses back to you about your true identity. You tell the truth to God and God tells the truth to you. And Ruth says that leaders need to be soul-ish leaders, that we need to have strength of soul. And if you hear the sound of my voice, you are a leader because leadership begins with listening. But in our busyness uh, to get things done and to do the tasks in front of us and to feed the thousands and to walk on water and to grieve the losses and to go to even the marches, uh, she says that we may get to the other side having lost our soul. She's not talking about losing your salvation. Let's, let's have that clear. It's, it's that place where we meet with God. My co-pastor Bobby asked this question how will we come out on the other side with our souls shredded or intact? Ruth says, we might get to the other side having lost our souls. And she says that it's dangerous when an individual or an institution or a church has lost its soul because it is like losing a credit card, she says. When you lose our credit card, it is more costly than words. You have to go back and to trace back and say, huh, when was the last time that I remember seeing it? And so it is with that soul place where we meet with God. We have to go back, she says, and, and, and realize that our busyness may cover up that at some point we've missed meeting with God. It may look like we're really busy doing all the things, but we have lost our soul. She says at some point we have to return like losing that credit card and go back that painful path and remember when was the last time I was in the presence of God. When was the last time that I started going through the motions? When was the last time that I started manufacturing emotion just to get through the day? When was the last time that I became numb to emotion? And she says that the problem with manufacturing emotion or becoming numb to emotion is that we can't delight in God and we can't discern and that is a dangerous place, she says. It is easy to get seduced by the mountain moving power, but it is easy to stop meeting with that mountain moving presence. And when we see that the ways of Jesus include this mountain moving presence in this meeting is where he is taking care of his body and soul. He is showing us how to be human. He's not saying do this in your divinity. In his humanity, he is showing us how to stop and listen. Stop and listen to our fatigue. Stop and listen to our exhaustion. Stop and listen to our grief. God invites the soul to slow down and that is no less faithful work than these other three sections in Matthew 14. Ruth asks, what are your resting rhythms? Do you sleep? Do you drink water? What are your sleeping rhythms? What are your rituals around rest and sleep and silence and solitude? And I realize that we're all going through a crisis right now and we're going to have to be creative because the pre-COVID rhythms don't longer, no longer work during COVID rhythms with all the challenges that our families and our individuals and our institutions are facing. facing. 
Many have challenging circumstances. Maybe you are a frontline worker. Maybe you are caring for aging parents. Uh, maybe you have uh, difficult relationships with your roommates. Maybe you are caring for lots of children and, and a place of quiet rest is just not appealing right now or just not possible. We're going to have to be creative. But these resting rhythms are breathing rhythms. Ruth says that uh, she calls these moments burning bush moments where we stop and recognize these burning bush moments. They're everywhere, she says. They're everywhere. When you read in Exodus, uh, the story of Moses going to the mountain to meet with God, it was interesting to see if you slow down and you look and you see is that first he says, I'm going to leave the flock that I'm, I'm caring for. And let me turn and see what this blazing fire is about. Moses turns to the side and turns to look and leaves one thing and turns to look at the face of God. And the text says that it is when the Lord says, when the Lord noticed that Moses turned his face, then he called out his name, not the other way around. When he turned his face, then he says, Moses, Moses, here I am. These burning bush moments. God is not going to compete with all the things. God is not going to compete with all the things. And he, when he sees that Moses turns, then he talks. When we turn, he talks and he holds you. And Ruth says that it's important to find these burning bush moments and to carve out time for them to actually happen. She says that burning bush moments are simply ordinary things that are made extraordinary by the touch of God. I believe that that's the, that's, that's the story of Psalm 23, of, of the shepherd leading us into quiet waters, into resting waters, and into green pastures. I believe it is the story of Psalm 84, where, where the psalmist is saying, happy are those whose strengths are, are in you, God, in whose hearts are the, on the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, the valley of tears, the valley of weeping, they make it a place of springs of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools and they go from strength to strength. In Psalm 84, the psalmist says, how lovely is your dwelling place? And he, he or she is trying to get to the dwelling place of God because they believed that the presence, the actual presence of God was at the temple and he or she was trying to get to the temple. But the reality is that they didn't live in the temple. They lived in the valley of tears, in the valley of weeping. But there, the psalmist says, they make it a place of springs. God provides the rain and they make it into a place of springs. We have agency to carve out that time. And then we go from strength to strength when God looks on the face of the anointed one. It is God's invitation to silence and rest. And silence comes in many ways. Your silence doesn't have to look like my silence. Silence will strengthen your soul and solitude will provide that restorative rest. It's even more critical this year, especially in the justice movements. And as I hear about what your church is doing and what's happening in Portland, the important work that's happening in Portland, even more important it is that these justice movements require Jesus moments. Otherwise, we're going to build a justice that is apart from Jesus. And we need a Jesus-shaped justice, not a AI-shaped justice or a you-shaped justice. And these Jesus movements, these Jesus moments are part of the justice movement. 
Jesus shows us how rest is part of his resistance. Jesus shows us how rest is part of this revolution. It is no less faithful to place those boundaries for others in order to withdraw, to be with the mountain, on the mountainside with God, to find those burning bush moments. And we're going to have to get creative. You know, each season requires different rhythms and that is okay. There are some things that I wish I could do that I, I can no longer do right now because my pre-COVID life is not sustainable. So what is the Spirit's invitation to you right now? What do your rhythms look like? Your rhythms of rest and your rhythms of silence and your rhythms of solitude. If you were able to fill in the line, my soul is at rest when dot, dot, dot. Sometimes I encourage people and I say, slow down enough where you can hear yourself breathe. If you can hear your own breath, then you can hear God's breath. Slow down enough that you can hear yourself breathe. Carve out that space for that sacred ground. Where is that sacred ground wherever you're standing? Where you're standing right now is sacred ground because your story fills that place. Some of the examples of burning bush moments for me are, are very are very mundane and very, very, very common. There's nothing extraordinary. I don't have uh, mountainsides of time, but more I got a lot of moments and minutes that how I use them can provide rest. Um, when we moved to this house about a year ago, um, I found out sadly that I don't have a dishwasher and um, I hate washing dishes, but my sink has become my sanctuary. I've broken about four glasses and cups because in my quickness, in my hurry to just get the task over with, I forgot to turn and see that there was a burning bush in that sink, that there was a blazing fire in that sink, and my sink has become my sanctuary. I have to wash the dishes, and in the washing, there's been times of crying, and there's been times of praying, and times of healing. My sink has become my sanctuary. As I go about my day, as Jesus went about doing the work, he found sanctuary. He carved out time. I may not have four hours, but I have plenty of time at my sink. Soul sanctuaries or these burning bush moments have looked like going out for walks, which is important during these times, or biking, or just sitting in my rocking chair. My rocking chair is back there, and sometimes I just sit there for five, ten, or 15, 15 minutes and I'm just aware of my body and I listen to my breath. And sometimes there are no words, no images, no nothing, just the awareness and the attentiveness and the mindfulness that God is present with me. And I say nothing. Burning bush moments also become just small moments like a sunset or when the, when the moon rises at night and there's a full moon, I step outside into the silence and I just sit there and I feel delighted in and I feel cherished and I feel treasured. Dr. Howard Thurman says that um, a burning bush moment, it could just be a poem or a picture. Just find whatever it is that helps you stand on sacred ground. Because as long as you are there, and there's silence in there. It may look like closing your bathroom door if you have little ones and you're like, mommy's gonna shut this door for 15 minutes. And that might be your most holy place in the house. Like Pastor Lynette said, our houses have become everything. And Ruth says, ordinary things become extraordinary by the touch of God and the presence of God. 
my hope and my prayer for us today is that we would listen to the Spirit's invitation to our soul, that we would turn like Moses and say, let me look at this thing here that is burning. Let me feel this emotion that I'm feeling because God has access to you through your grief, through your feelings, through your fatigue, through your exhaustion, that you would slow down enough that you'd be able to hear yourself breathe and that you would carve out that time, carve out that soul space, carve out that sacred ground, wherever you are, wherever you're standing, at the sink or outside or inside, wherever you are, that you would be able to commune with God. Let me pray for us before we enter into our time of communion. God, you have searched us and you know us. You know when we sit down and when we rise and you know our thoughts and our feelings and our grief and our emotions from afar. You are familiar with the, with the grief that we are housing. But God, you promised that in your presence, this house of grief can become a home of grace and a place of rest and a place of growth. So God, by your spirit, may this day and may this week, may we would find the rhythms that can sustain our bodies and souls. I pray for every sister and every brother. I don't pretend to know what their situation is, but God, may you call their name and may they turn your face towards your face and may in your presence, may they be healed. May they be put back together. May the fractured par parts of their soul and the fatigue of their bodies be restored to the deep bone marrow places, God. May your presence rush in like living waters into the deep and vulnerable places of our cracked souls, God. May you do a work in us so that we can do the work that you have called us to do. God, thank you for this church. Thank you for anyone who is listening to my voice. May we just come and commune with you. And even as we enter into this time of communion, God, may we be listening to your voice towards, towards us and to our soul's invitation to commune with you. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.